What a great bumper song. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Chad Myers. I'm our adult discipleship director. And uh, good to be with you. Welcome to those of you joining us online, wherever you are. Shout out to my wife. She won second place in a Christmas karaoke contest last night. So uh, that was kind of a big deal. And uh, she's t- she tuned into our nine o'clock, but now she's at a basketball game and she's tuning in again. And uh, here's what I, I love about that is because we have Mount Horeb family all over the United States, all over the world. And we're not patting ourselves on the back. We're just saying like God's doing something incredible. And we realize people have seasons where they have to travel. People have seasons where they maybe have kids in sports or they want to come, but they can't. I mean, obviously, we'd love to see you in this room and people can't come back yet or they can't come right now, uh, but they want to attend church somehow or they're in a location that they don't find a church that they really feel comfortable worshiping in. And I love the forward thinking of Mount Horeb to say, let's continue to do ministry well by reaching people. That's the template of Jesus, reaching people wherever they are and getting give them truth and grace and, and worship in a way that they can connect. So I'm thankful for that. And uh, wherever you're joining us with, uh, from Brazil, or uh, we have some family in Brazil or uh, Wisconsin, we're glad you're here. And what's up to those of you in the room? I, I forget about you. I forget about you. I know you here, 1045, a little bit rowdy. Um, like Emma, this is my favorite time of year. I'm not just saying that. It really is. I love everything about it. I love Christmas trees. I love decorating the Christmas trees. We have a little flannel advent calendar that our kids do all the time. Uh, I love the cookies. I love the food, the cookies. Uh, my house, my, my wife decorates our house in this wonderful, like, winter wonderland. Uh, there's that fake snow with the lights underneath it in those little villages, and there's always Christmas songs on the cookies. I love those. I love this time of year. Uh, the, other, the other day... Some friends of ours asked us to do an activity together. They said, hey, what if we did a friendly competition in the neighborhood, a little Christmas scavenger hunt together? And I was like, okay, let's do it. Uh, We went over some rules. I'm a little bit competitive. You may have already picked up on that. And so we got the scavenger hunt list, uh, and we had such a time period to go and look around the neighborhood for everybody's decorations and see what we could check off. Each one had a different point value. I may have drove a little bit over the speed limit once or twice, but... uh, uh, we, we, we looked at this list, and I said to the kids, read this thing out loud to me. I want to know what's on it so we know what to look for first. We'll go by point value. And so they're reading normal stuff off to me, you know, like you got to look for a North Pole sign. Uh, you got to look for Frosty, a house with only white lights, a house with only blue lights, whatever it is. And then they got to something that I had not thought of before and didn't have never heard it before, and it had a really high point value system, and they said, oh, Dad, uh, you have to find a pig. And I thought to myself, what on earth does a pig have to do with Christmas? Other than maybe we eat bacon on Christmas Day for breakfast or something of the sort. I was trying to piece these together. If anyone has the answer for me, I would be deeply grateful. And I thought to myself, we're not going to find a pig in somebody's decorations. I was wrong. We're driving around, and I thought, we got to find that thing first if it exists. I didn't expect it to. Sure enough, here's an inflatable pig. There's an inflatable pig. There's an inflatable pig. And I was like, okay, I sit corrected. A pig now fits in the Christmas decorations. You ever come across something that you looked at or heard, and you thought, that just doesn't fit? It doesn't fit. It's a misfit. 
In fact, the origin of the word misfit comes from about 1823 when a person was going to get tailored clothes. They go to the tailor, they get fitted for a suit or a coat, and, uh, it, and, and, and they would show up, and if it didn't fit them, if it was too big or too small, it was described as a misfit. And now it's uh, used more in a little bit of a personal way where someone, you know, you're in middle school, middle school's tough, nobody feels like they fit in. Uh, you know, maybe you're in business and you don't feel like it fits or you're in a group but you don't feel like you have belonging and you label yourself or you feel like a misfit. It's for outsiders, you know, strangers looking in like, oh, I'm not on the inside, I'm a misfit. And we've been in this series called Misfits, and what we're learning about it is that misfits fit in at the manger. That in Christ, whoever we are, whatever background we have, whatever status we come with, we can find a sense of belonging at the manger. I, I love this series. It's a bit of a nod to the 1963 uh, classic movie, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, uh, but we, we, we kicked it off. Bryce kicked us off with the Misfits of Mary and Joseph. These pregnant teens. You imagine telling your parents that story? Oh, I'm pregnant. And God's the father? Like, that's a misfit story. And these poor, lowly teens and that God uses to carry about his message. And then last week, we had our very own Prashanth talk about the shepherds, the riffraff, ragamuffin shepherds, who at that time, nobody trusted, nobody believed them. Their testimony was not permissible in a court of law because they were viewed with suspicion. They were misfits, but maybe you haven't quite identified with either of those stories, and maybe today God's going to awaken something in you because we are going to talk about the wise men or the magi, the popular song, We Three Kings of Orientar. That's about the wise men or the magi, and we know that the wise men brought three gifts to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and uh, my wife's a huge essential oil enthusiast, and so she had sacred frankincense, and I said, so hey, I'm preaching on that. Can I borrow your sacred frankincense? And she was like, yeah, but it's really pricey. Like, be careful with it and bring it back to me. So this morning, I have on some sacred frankincense in honor of the wise men. Now, if you don't know what that fragrance is like, I'll be your Jimmy John's free smells. <laughs> some of you are like, he's so weird. <laughs> yeah, you hadn't figured that out yet? You're late to the party. But everybody is welcomed at the manger. The manger is a place where our misfittedness doesn't disqualify us. In fact, it's the one thing that qualifies us. Some people think they can't find themselves in God because of their sin. Well, my sin disqualifies me from finding myself in God. Uh, it's actually the reverse. Knowing that we have sin is the one thing that qualifies us for being acceptable to God because we know we need him. And the manger is a place where all are safe, but no one is comfortable. All are safe, but no one is comfortable. I think that's probably a healthy church. Everyone can belong, but God is asking us all to change, and that makes us feel uncomfortable. We're gonna see the wise men, we're gonna see King Herod, and we're gonna, I would like to kind of interact with this question, what is threatening by the, about the manger? It's a child, and so it's safe. Baby Jesus is safe. It's the humility, the fragility of God, so he's approachable. And yet, the things that he's going to ask from us are uncomfortable, so how is the manger menacing? 
Matthew chapter 2, if you have your Bible, you can follow along. You can follow along on your phone or on the screen. Matthew 2, 1 through 8 says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. One of the first things that this passage teaches us is that true misfits yield to the monarchy of the manger. True misfits yield to the monarchy of the manger says that King Herod heard this question and he was disturbed. What disturbed him about the question and who is King Herod? King Herod had a father named Antipas and Antipas was friends with Julius Caesar. He wasn't the king uh, for a long time. There was another king uh, in Judea and Herod was in Rome, but because of his father's friendship with Caesar, they named Herod the king, and so with military force, he led a campaign and conquered Jerusalem and Judea, and he set himself up, and he gave himself the title of king, so people called him King Herod, but he's really a a puppet king. Rome had the ultimate authority. He's a puppet king of Rome, so the Jews began to despise him. He's known for his great building campaigns, The second temple, not Solomon's temple, the rebuilt temple was under Herod's reign. So he rebuilt the temple. He's known for other buildings that he built. He's known for his uh, showmanship. He's also known for his violence. We know from the end of this story that he ordered the killing of two-year-old and under children in Bethlehem, which probably was around 25 to 30 children, but he ordered this killing of children. He also later in life was so suspicious of his family because of his Uh, power and rule that he had his own family members put to death. Herod is a prop king. He's a puppet king, but something inside of him was disturbed. Now, this is a euphemism, disturbed. When the Bible uses figurative language, we're to try to, we're to use our skills to interpret it. What is it, what is it saying? A euphemism is a word that we use to soften the blow, but it's for emphasis. So when someone dies, we typically don't say that, oh, they died. Often what we'll do uh, in our circles, we'll say, well, oh, they, they passed. They passed away. It's a euphemism. And so disturbed is actually an understatement. He was threatened. Something threatened Herod about the manger. And it was this question that the wise men asked him. The question is this, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Not where is a one or where is one, but definite article the, supreme. Where is the one? And Herod knew there cannot be two rulers on the throne. So this is a threat to me. It's a threat to whatever Herod found significance in and meaning in and purpose in 
and power in and whatever that was for him, whatever he had propped up for himself. It was all about building up ego and getting strokes and kudos and does everyone know my name and what I've done and how great I am and how people need me. That's the voice of ego whenever we hear that in our own lives. And this question, where is the one, threatened him. He knew there couldn't be two. My, uh, we have three daughters and we have a son. And my son from an early age, uh, we didn't teach him. We didn't coach him. He just started to uh, express that whenever I was gone traveling for some type of ministry event, like he was the man of the house. And he would make that known. And so... Just recently, uh, I was here, and my family was leaving, and we, I've introduced our Great Dane to you, Chewbacca. You know Chewbacca, the Great Dane. She's famous all over Lexington and other parts of the world. And uh, she hates to be left behind. So whenever my family goes out and gets in the, the minivan, it's hard for me to say that. <laughs> I was going to say car. I wish I said SUV, but I'm just got to be honest with you. They get in the minivan. So they go out, and they get in the minivan, <clears throat> she hates to be left behind. So she knows how to open the front door. So she pushed herself out of the front door, ran out of the house and sat by the minivan and waited for the door to be open. Now, here's the thing. If you open the sliding door, she will push, she's 112-ish pounds. She will push you out of the way and get in the, the car and just sit there. And just like, where are we going? It's time to go bye-bye. I'm not staying inside alone. You're taking me with you, right? And so they couldn't take her with them uh, this particular day. So they were all, you know, Chewbacca, go inside. Chewie, go. You got to go inside. And no one would listen to her. So finally, Boaz grabs her. He's 11. He weighs like 60 pounds soaking wet. Grabs her by the scruff of the neck. And he says to her out loud, I'm the man of the house now. And he shepherds her all the way into the front door and puts her inside. I'm the man of the house now. I love it. He's 11. He knows, though. When I'm home, I'm the man of the house, so to speak. When I'm not there, he is. This is his mind. And he knows there can't be two at the same time. And Herod knew this. Can't be two kings. And he's threatened by it. Herod's in a crisis. He was put in a crisis by the question, a crisis is a stage and a sequence of events at which the trend of all future events, especially for better or for worse, is determined. And he's put in crisis by this question, and he's invited into this stage in which he has the opportunity to respond for growth. He can either enlarge and grow, or he can shrink and become small. We are often given those crisis moments as well, these stages. But we can sympathize a little bit with Herod. Not every Christmas gift is easy to receive. Can you imagine if somebody gives you a Christmas gift and it's a book and you open it and it's a dieting book? And then another friend gives you a book and you open it and it's a book on overcoming selfishness. And, and, and if you were to sincere, sincerely say, thank you so much for these gifts, you are in a sense admitting that you need to change. And until we've understood that this baby in a manger is a similar type of gift, where we are welcome but invited to change until we are scandalized by that and offended by that, we haven't understood the true meaning of Christmas. He lays claim to our life and he says, I want your loyalty, I want your allegiance, I want your affection. I want you to place the full weight of your existence in my hands and let go. 
That's a demand. And Herod shows us this haunting question. Do we want God for God's sake or do we want God for God's gifts? Do we want God for God's sake or do we want God for God's gifts? There's a, a woman in Illinois who wrote a story about one of the most meaningful Christmases that she and her husband experienced. They had a 10-year-old daughter and the 10-year-old daughter wrote a little letter and shoved her letter behind the Christmas tree. And after all the presents were open, she grabbed the letter and she gave it to her parents. And it was her Christmas present to them and it was simply this, a note of gratitude that they were her mom and her dad. And every parent knows that that moment where the child says, thank you so much, but if you never gave me another thing, you're enough and I love you. Every parent knows that that's what we want. And God doesn't take away his gifts from us. He doesn't. But he gives us himself inside of those things. And yet the question still arises, if, if we never had his gifts, would he be enough? Would he be enough? We know that Herod can't do this, and every time God lays claim to our life, it results in some form of violence. What Herod couldn't do was he couldn't die to self. He couldn't die to ego. He couldn't pick up his cross and lay that selfishness down. He couldn't take that thing that he tried to build, which was really just weak scaffolding, and he propped himself up on it. He couldn't take that and say, it doesn't even matter. And so when we can't die to self, that violence is going to leak out somewhere else. We're going to kill somebody's reputation through gossip, slander, social media. We're going to kill a core relationship that we actually really, really wanted and really, really valued. When we can't die to self, maybe we're gonna sabotage our own story because of that shame. And Herod couldn't submit, he couldn't yield to the monarchy of the manger. And there are lessons for us to learn from him. We also learn from the wise men, Matthew 2, 9 through 11. After they heard the king Herod, that is, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. The house is an important word for us. And they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I'm not frankincense. Don't confuse that. The second thing we learn here is that true misfits yield to the majesty of the manger. True misfits yield to the majesty of the manger. Now, I'm not the guy that likes to destroy Christmas illusions. I'm really not. Don't get happy about it. But I just am here to tell you that it's likely the wise men were not at the manger at the birth. They're not in the nativity scenes. Now, some of you, it's going to take you a few days to get over that. And that's okay. And you can keep your nativity scene. Don't light it on fire or throw it away. But they were not there. It says that they, they came to the house. Most scholars think that they probably came about two years later. So Jesus is likely two years old around, give or take. And they came and they presented him with gifts. But how did they get there and who were they? What's this star? There's this reference in Numbers 24 that says this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter, what's a scepter? 
It's what a ruler would hold in their right hand. A ruler will rise out of Israel. This vague reference in Numbers 24, hundreds of years ago, this prophecy about a king born in Jerusalem. Now, the wise men were not Jews. They're from the east, but they are putting this together. It's likely that this prophecy had made its way into other wisdom literature and other cultures and other folklore, if you will. And they're studying what's happening and they're trying to respond with the information that they've been given. Who were the Magi? Magus in the Greek simply means the learned class. They're well-educated, white-collar, PhDs. They were educated in mathematical calculations, astronomy, astrology, medicinal healings. These were sharp, wealthy people. They were advisors to kings, not necessarily kings themselves. That became later in the Christian tradition. It's not quite there. They're more likely advisors to kings. Uh, it's the uh, 20th anniversary of uh, Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring today, today. So just a little shout out. Think less Theoden, think more Gandalf, right? Advisors to the king. Here's the path you should choose. Here's what's happening. In fact, if you think about Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, when he had a troubling dream, he called all of his advisors together to see if they could interpret it for him. He called his wise men, his magi together, his advisors. And they come from the east. And the east would have meant the land at the time of Christ, media, the Medes, the Persians, Assyria, Babylon. They're coming from that land. And they're trying to fit together in their own light. What is God doing? And sometimes God hits us over the head, so to speak. It's like the angels to the shepherds in the field. It's divine revelation. Like, this is the message. This is the child. Go. And we're like, yeah, okay, I got it. That's it. Sometimes it's like a dream to Joseph and a voice to Mary. This is what God is saying. This is what God is pointing us to. But many times, it's like the message to the Magi. And what's interesting to me is we don't, we don't see this divine revelation to them necessarily. We see them scanning the horizon, searching books, piecing things to together, watching TED Talks, trying to figure out what is God doing? He's, he's putting something here and we need to follow this. We need to pay attention to it and we just need to take the next step. It's like piecing a, a jigsaw puzzle together without, without the picture. You have some puzzle pieces in your hand and you've been wondering what God has been doing and you know they reflect something large and you don't quite know what it is because you can't see the full picture but all you need to know is how does it fit right now? I was out on my front yard just a few months ago. I've been waiting to tell this story. I've been sitting on it for a while and I've been like, it's gotta fit though. It's gotta fit really good. This is Mount Horeb. It can't be cheap preaching. There's no cheap preaching in Mount Horeb. It's gotta be good. And yes, I've always had a running commentary on my own message, so if you're wondering. I was standing out in my front yard, and it's, it's, it's dusk. This guy comes walking by, and he's walking his dogs, and he looks at me, and he says, do you know the history of your house? And I said, no, sir, I don't. He's gonna tell me. He says, yeah, a bank robber used to live there. And the first thing I thought was, we need to pray over this house. Like, who else knows what's gone on in this house? If bank robbing is a full-time job, like, who knows what they do in their spare time? Like, you know, it could be like the kitten killer bank robber type thing. So we're gonna pray over the house. We're gonna anoint the house. We're gonna get any bad vibes and bad spirits out of this house. My very second thought, a millisecond after that one was, maybe there's money stashed away in the house. (laughs) 
You know you thought it too. So we went looking. Still have places to check. But I had this message. Now, I don't know if this guy was right. Hey, he may not know anything. He may just say, oh, I've heard this and I've heard this and I've heard this. But he'd be given this little piece of the puzzle, right? It was enough to intrigue me. I'm not tearing down my walls yet, but it was enough to intrigue me. And then we get this piece of mail. And my wife opens this piece of mail. And sure enough, it's from the jail. And it's a bill. He owes them money. <laughs> so then I thought, here's another piece of the puzzle. This is a legit thing, right? This, there was a bank robber that lived in this house. And I had confirmation of the earlier evidence, which has prompted me to further action. <laughs> but you see how this, this is how this works. And this is encouraging because this is how God reaches misfits. We get a little piece of the puzzle. We get a little bit of message. We're not sure. We're not sure if we can trust it or not, but we investigate it and we wait and we pray. You know, maybe you prayed, maybe you started to pray recently you've never prayed before. It's this little piece of the puzzle. Well, what's God doing? Maybe that prayer, you can pray for six months and then it leads to, I, you know, I, I wanna go a little bit further. I, I wanna go pick up a Bible or I wanna go pick up a devotional book and then you get that and you start to read every once in a while, once a week, five minutes and it's this next piece of the puzzle and you're starting to put it together and you're starting to piece it together and you start to feel like, you know, this is what God's doing. This is where God's leading. This is how God's showing me. And then maybe it's a neighbor or a friend, you know, not the obnoxious type of Christian, but like the normal one, like you can relate to them and they're like, you know, people. And uh, maybe they invite you to church and you think, well, I'll watch online and you watch online. You watch online for six months to a year and then you think, okay, well, maybe I'll go in person. You see, and this is how God reaches misfits. What are your puzzle pieces right now? What is he showing you right now? What's your next step? And will we enlarge and grow or will we shrink? Isaiah 60 says this. What is the significance of the gifts? Hold on with me until I get to verse six. I love this passage. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the people. So remember, there's this theme of light and darkness in Isaiah. Remember Isaiah 9, it's often read during Christmas services. Uh, Behold, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. It's this prophecy about a Messiah and this Messiah would bring a, a great light. So it's this theme again here. Verse two, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you all assemble and come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Listen to this. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Wise men from the east, Sheba, Midian, bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh, the light has come. The Gentiles are bringing their wealth to the true king of all creation and they're laying it down at his feet. Messiah has come. Messiah has been born. The ancient church also understood these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh as meaning something more. The gold would mean the royalty of a king. 
The frankincense would re reference his divinity. It would be burned in a temple. The myrrh represented his humanity. So in their gifts, they show Christ as king, God, and man. Now, we don't know how many came. We have three gifts, so we think there's three in the Western tradition. We do. In the Eastern tradition, they think there's 12. I don't know if it's that important. What we do know is that they did come to Jesus around two years old in the catacombs in Rome, the Christian catacombs in Rome. Uh, early on, there's about 85 drawings of the wise men coming to Jesus. And what do they do? They bring worship. They bring their wealth. They bring their gifts. They bring their skills, their talents. They're representatives of the other nations and kings. And they bring it and they yield. They did what Herod could not do. You know what's fascinating to me? Is they didn't cease to be wise men. Sometimes we draw very unhelpful parallels for us in the church. And we think that these wise men came and they laid down their position, but they didn't. They didn't cease to be magi. And my question is, how do we, middle class, upper class representatives of the magi, how do we maintain our position but have a misfit posture? This is what they had. It's one word. Humility. Humility. God was born in a manger. Some, some scholars think it's a cave. Some people think it's a, underneath a house and it's this dugout trough where there's food. They put the food for the barn animals, donkeys and horses and pigs. But God was born there. And there we learn that God is humble. And God is humble and humble people take God with them. The Bible says that God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. Herod couldn't get past his pride. And yet the wise men, potentially more powerful than Herod, lay down and yield their lives to the authority of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 says, where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. God is humble. He humbles himself. He empties himself. In a sense, he lays down his control and comes as a dependent child so that we might be rescued. How do we maintain our position but have a misfit posture? Humility, because this is important, and please hear me carefully. God is not opposed to success, but self-serving. God is not opposed to power, but oppression. God is not opposed to wealth, but to greed. God is not opposed to status, but self-sufficiency. And what Herod said, all is mine, he lost everything. When the wise men say, all is yours, they used it to serve the Savior, not themselves. That's the key. It's because they had humility. As William Billings put it, seek not in courts nor palaces 
nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable, see your God extended on the straw. Vulnerable. Humble. Look, look, look. This baby, he's our God. I, uh, have a few top Christmas movies that I have to watch every year, and I tell the family, you cannot watch this without me. You'll be punished if you do. One of them is A Muppet Christmas Carol. It's one of my favorites, I know. It's loosely based on the Charles Dickens story, Christmas Carol. And in this story, Ebenezer Scrooge, he is miserable. The word miser, means that someone who has a lot to offer, but they keep it to themselves. They're closely related. He's a miser who's miserable. He hates Christmas. He hates everyone and loathes everyone who celebrates Christmas. Bah humbug, he goes around saying. But he gets visited. And in the movies, it's often three spirits in one night, but in Charles Dickens' original story, it was over three nights spirit of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. And he goes and he sees his past and he faces his failures and he faces his guilt. And he's taken in the present and he sees the pain of the present and his loneliness. And then he's taken and he sees by Christmas future the emptiness and hollowness of his life that will be if he continues on the same track and who we meet in the beginning is Ebenezer Scrooge with that little Herod in his heart kicking and screaming just like all of our little Herods in our heart. No, it's my life. I'm in control of my circumstances and I've got my fists tightly closed around it. And the reason I really do love the story of a Christmas carol is because he's a miser who became a misfit. And his hands broke wide open. And he accepted his failures of his past. And he owned the pain of the present. And he learned from the future. And he said, whenever God lays claim to me, I'm going to die to self. And I'm going to change. I'm going to respond in such a way, by God's grace, And I'm not going to end up on that trajectory. And I'm going to find my identity in the true meaning of Christmas. Charles Dickens loved Christmas. He loved the Bible. In fact, he says the New Testament was one of the greatest books ever written. It's a highly and thoroughly Christian story. And in it, it's a tale of redemption and forgiveness and grace. And Ebenezer Scrooge comes out on Christmas Day, a completely changed person, and he brings light and life and generosity and blessing to everyone he meets. He maintains his position, but he has a misfit posture, and it brings blessing to his family and to others around. May the Christmas story this year have the same effect in our hearts and may we die to self so that we don't bring violence to anyone else around us and may we bring the light of Christ and bless those around us. Let's pray. 
Father, we're so humbled by your truth. We're so humbled by your words. We're so humbled of all the different people represented that we find at the manger. And we know, we know that you are the safest person we could ever be in relationship with. We don't have to perform to get your approval. When we don't perform, we don't get your despise because you love us unconditionally in Christ. And we can never do anything to make you love us more. We could never do anything to make you love us less. You will never betray us, forsake us, manipulate us, use us, abuse us. And so you're safe. But that's not all you are. You lay claim to our whole self, our whole heart. And we can't just have a little bit of you on the side. You say, I want it all. Help us. We cannot give humility to ourselves. You have to give that to us. And so we pray for it. And this year, this week, may we really get the advent of Christ and make space for you in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.